From Chopsticks Alley, I'm Zach Anderson. These are our stories. This week, we gathered a group of Asian American writers and poets to discuss the influence of Asian American and Pacific Island literature and how it's informed our own work. Joining me today is Azela Kemper. She is the co-editor with me of Chopsticks Alley Pinoy. Uh, Azela, thank you for coming here. Thank you so much, Zach. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Also joining us is the author of We Should Never Be and The Reeducation of Cherry Trung. She is also a professor and former chair of the writing department at California College of the Arts, Amy Fan. Amy, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Zach. And last but certainly not least is a Portland-based poet who was from 2013 to 2016 the only Asian American member of the Portland Poetry Slam Nationals team and his work has been featured in the Huffington Post, Upworthy and Everyday Feminism. Uh, Alex Dang, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Very excited to be here, to be part of the communications, the conversation, the community. Thank you again for having me. All right. Thank you again, all three of you. So to start, I want to ask all three of you, um, who were some of the artists that influenced your work as writers? And to amend that, I also want you to go into when you were first introduced to Asian American and Pacific Island literature. Asela, do you mind kicking us off? Yeah, so what's interesting is that my work has been very much influenced. It's kind of weird. So my introduction to literature was like, or at least specifically Asian American literature was through like ancient China or Japan or just basically anything anime. But the root of it is basically mangas and graphic novels. It's just the way they tell the stories and through fantasy, yet still keep this really authentic grounding story and lessons about how to treat other people, how to be kind. And great examples can be like Karkata Sakura or Fruits Basket, and even to an extent Yu-Gi-Oh, which is like an epitome of friendship. So that's kind of what started. And what really sets this tone was like introducing to works by Franny Choi or Cynthia Kodahara. That's where it starts to kind of really mesh my stories together to be more authentic about myself, as well as my own upbringing as an Asian American woman. But not to an extent of like, it's not too preachy, but it's still kind of learning more of my myself. I think that's the best way to describe my writing is that I'm still learning more about myself as time goes by and even the most oppressed emotions that I've kept so long in, in me since like childhood and everything that like I was taught about because I'm Asian or that there are certain things that I shouldn't be talking about or I shouldn't get quote unquote sensitive over. It really bring up so much and relearning and unlearning a lot of those things. So yeah, there are many many things that influence, but I think those are like the main components to how my writing and my introduction to literature really came to be. Amy, do you want to um, add anything to, to that as well? Sure. Uh, so my um, introduction to Asian American literature, I think, was much more probably traditional. Um, it happened in college. I didn't read that much, that much Asian American literature growing up. I think the two books I can remember were Farewell to Manzanar, which was a memoir, 
and the Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan, which we read for um, English class in high school. And I actually remember being incredibly affected by it. And I think there are still many Asian American authors of my generation who were affected by it, this idea that we could be seen in literature. It was very striking. It was very, um, I think, it was really groundbreaking, whatever you think about the book itself. And I know that it is a book that is very of its time, but at that time, when there was very little out there, it was this moment of realizing that we could be seen um, and our stories could matter, and especially um, female stories could matter. I think that was huge. Um, I went to UCLA, and I um, decided to major in creative writing, but I also became interested when I was satisfying my um, my literature courses I wanted to take Asian American literature classes. And at the time, I it was it seemed so fortunate that I could choose those classes, which I never had access to before growing up. And so I was taking literature courses and reading short stories, poetry, plays, novels by Asian American writers. And I was being taught by Asian American writers and critics like David Wong Louie and Russell Lung and Rachel Lee. And it was incredibly eye-opening and amazing to be able to read these books that did so much in terms of starting Asian American literature. And so the two books I think I remember the most from those those years were Dog Eaters by Jessica Hagedorn and No No Boy by John Akata. And I think those two books really opened my eyes to realize oh, this is what literature can do. Literature can really form an Asian American identity. It can really change people's minds or color people's perspectives in terms of knowing what Asian Americans mean in this country and mean in the world. And one additional thing that I thought was very specific to, I think, my education as an Asian American writer was that there was this theater group on campus and they would perform in the auditorium in the dorms and it was called Lapu, the Coyote That Cares. This group was called, uh, nicknamed LCC and the group was founded by um, several very influential Asian American actors and writers who are now successful in Hollywood today. And they include Randall Park and Ali Wong and uh, Christina Wong. And so we would go see these performances, these improv performances in the evenings after we would eat at the cafeterias. And we didn't realize at the time that we were really seeing them cut their teeth on these performances that they would later go on to do and um, perform in stand-up and then write shows and, and, and now have movies on Netflix. And Alex, do you remember the time when you were first introduced to Asian American literature and um, what that felt like for you? I think for me, Asian American literature took more of the form of theatrics and performance. Uh, I never thought I was going to be a writer. Truth be told, when I was younger and I first learned poetry, I hated it. I thought that you needed to rhyme everything. I had no sense of internal rhythm or rhyme. Uh, And then I realized that it's more than just the form, but the way the story is told. 
So a lot of that was informed by Sun Wukong of uh, Paris by uh, Paris uh, Min, uh, Midnight in Paris, uh, all these different variety shows that uh, Vietnamese uh, culture had, karaokeing, all these different ways of performing to get across to folks and. I think that's what drew me more to slam poetry was because it was interactive with the audience. And I always grew up in a very interactive household, three older brothers. My mom and dad used to host karaoke parties. Uh, they are kind of the people in town that everybody knows. So for me, I was always drawn to the community aspect and the fact that in this community, we were exchanging stories that might on the surface look the same, but you dig a little deeper and everybody's got a unique story and everybody has a story that's uniquely qualified to be celebrated. Everyone should be celebrated. And I think that's what poetry taught me. I want to just point out too, I think um, all four of us, we had the bless, we had the um, privilege and blessing of being educated on the West Coast. And do you think that kind of geographic uh, blessing made it more accessible for us to be um, exposed to Asian American and Pacific Island li literature or just Asian AAPI um, art in general. Yeah, so mine's an interesting case says I've been moving around a lot as a kid. So I didn't, re so again, like when I was like reading much more because in schools, it's just learning more about like ancient China or ancient Japan, where whereas like you rarely hear any like current contemporary Asian American stories. Like I remember in high school, when I used to go to school in California, I read this book, Farewell to Manzanar, and we were supposed to write an assignment on it. But there were a lot of, I was like one of the few kids who wrote, actually wrote about Farewell to Manzanar. And it got to a point where I didn't realize until there was a microaggression behind it of just like expressing any Asian American or wanting to explore any Asian American content. Like I had a friend who came up to me one time, I was like researching about Farewell to Manzanar. And she's like, why do you pick Farewell to Manzanar out of everything, out of all the topics? And I said, well, because it's important to me because I'm Asian and I didn't know about this. I want to learn about this. And this was back when our class had a choice between Manzanar or Auschwitz. Because uh, it was a concentration camp back in Jewish concentration camps. And when I gave her my response to why I picked Manzanar, she said, yeah, but it's not as bad as the Jewish camps. Like they didn't die there. And I said, but still, <laughs> it's it's still important. She said, yeah, but they didn't die and get gas chambers. So yeah, but that, that's like not that's like not the point, though. Like, exactly. What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the problem was that I was the uh, she was the only other person I know in class. She approached me to this. And this was back in freshman year. And I didn't have anyone to back me up. So I was like literally Ugh. the only I was her. It was me against her word. And I'm like. I, the last thing I do, I'm like, you know what, I, I can see your point, I guess. So, and that kind of, I guess, took part into just learning and just from friends as well as like media and schools, the way they were taught. Because when I moved to up to Oregon, there weren't really a lot of like Asian American literature classes. Mm -hmm. Even when I went to university, it was Southern Oregon University. There weren't even a lot, they used to be a Pan-Asian union and that wasn't there anymore until like the year after I graduated from SOU, they finally had an Asian student union. So it just, 
it's this kind of weird way of like, I kind of did, but kind of didn't get introduced to Asian American lit until like years later. So it's just when, or even when I did try, it's just met with like, yeah, but not. It was met with some side of some, some some kind of resistance, whether or not it was you had the resources or when you try to go for the resources, just something yeah. would happen, right? Like, so yeah. that, that's the exact same thing that happened to me. And, you know, born and raised in Portland, Oregon, it's Portlandia is a documentary. Like if you've seen Portlandia, <laughs> that's pretty accurate. And being like commonly the first Asian American person a lot of people met, it mm. was a lot of me being like, the starter kit Asian to like introduce you to the culture. But I mm. did it so much that I, not that I liked it, but I got good at it. And like, I'm, I, I have a lot of tendencies for my mom to be like a good host and stuff. <laughs> so this mm. idea of me like calling people in instead of calling people out has always been very natural to me. And I think that's kind of why I gravitated towards writing and education. But now even thinking further back on like the literal first books about Asian Americans that I read was uh, Catfish and Mandala by Andrew X. Pham. And this was literally a memoir of him biking through Vietnam, trying to reconnect with his roots. And immediately I was like, yeah, I have no idea what Vietnam looks like. I've lived in America my entire life. I don't know that side of my culture. I don't know that mm -hmm. side of my heritage or family. And then to make things more complicated, and I'm also half Chinese, so there still is different Chinese cultures versus Vietnamese cultures and customs. But being in America, both of them being lumped together. And also my mom grew up in Vietnam. So this mm -hmm. is also kind of a sacrifice ish. She, she had to focus a little bit more on raising us, quote, Vietnamese. And I think these are all weird, weird decisions that you kind of have to make. Like you're looking at your identity and you're almost picking and choosing what's the most convenient. Yeah, that it, it's so weird how it's like our stories intersect because like my mom was is Korean, but she was born and raised in Japan. So she's more familiar with that culture. But mm. when she immigrated here and I'm half Chinese, too. So when we were here, she just want us to focus solely on like learning English because yeah, America. Yeah, America, because this is our home. She wants us to survive in this home. And when I did express like, I want to learn Japanese, like she said, then why? What would you do? What would you use them? Like I can communicate with people in the Japanese communities like, yeah, but that's only them. You're not going to do it to everything else. Right. So it's just it's so much weird. Like now listening to you, it's just like, yeah, it, there is a call into it. And I think that's why all of us have gravitated towards, especially uh, both of us have gravitated to writing because of, we gotten used to it. So it's interesting. <laughs> it's really I interesting. Was, I was like literally talking to like my family and stuff and like, sometimes we just don't get each other and that's fine. But like, when you look at the root cause of like, oh man, there's like language barriers first and foremost, not even like a cultural generational thing, but it's just like, what if I just mishear you? Or what if you just mishear me because we're just using different languages? And I feel like that kind of search for not even the truth, but just the right words. Yeah, and um, Amy, do you have anything to add to um, this conversation as well before we moved on, move on to the next topic? Yeah, sorry. I just, I find them fascinating. I was just loving listening. Oh, I was like waiting for Amy. I was like, come on, no, Amy, no, come through are. and blow us away. No, this is great. No, I think um, what what I think I so appreciate about the future of Asian American literature, I know I'm jumping ahead to some of Zach's questions, is that it should get more complicated. Um, there is more uh, uh, people who are not just homogenous in Asian cultures as well. 
And if white America has to catch up to differentiate it, that's their job to catch up. That's their job to be able to understand that Asian American literature and Asian American culture is incredibly diverse and complicated with a lot of intermarriages and a lot of intersectionality in order. Um, and so people are not just one thing, right? People, every single person has a different specific history. And I think what's interesting is the history. It used to be, I think, when you would look at Asian American literature, often it was dictated by the person's um, they were dealing with two countries. They were dealing with America and America's history with their motherland, right? And so it could be colonial, like Vietnam in America. It could be contentious, like China in America or Japan in America, right? Like it was very specific about, well, what were the wars that America was involved in? And now I think it's much more complicated because you've got multiple generations of Asian Americans in this country, You've got um, people marrying into other Asian histories, right? Like they don't always have to be 100% Chinese American. And so we're dealing with, I think, understanding the different histories and how those communities have interacted. Um, we look at Hawaii and how Hawaii was definitely created on a history of pitting Asian races against each other in order to compete with each other, which is something that... This country has done for centuries. That is how white supremacy was allowed to, you know, prosper and to have such a foothold on this country was pitting the races against each other. And what happens now when I think Asian Americans, but all people of color are able to recognize that history and realize like we're not the enemies with each other. Mm. We actually have a lot in common and our histories can be different. And it's about, listening and understanding but those Amy, histories. it's so hard to listen to each other there's so many things to listen to I know. and it keeps changing doesn't right it? like, like i was re- static like i was revisiting like you know the term asian american and i was just like shaking my head at the irony of like okay we're gonna stand together in solidarity not as a monolith because vincent chin has been murdered but we're gonna stand together in solidarity which has kind of ironically made us into a monolith right Right. But it was like originally to be like, no, 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 we're standing in solidarity because we we're all very different. And just like, I just, it's exactly what you said. It's all, there's always going to be a if or an and or a but, right? And it's constantly changing and it's going to keep changing. And we, and what I think is really interesting is that, um, yeah, like we've got people who are going to be biracial. We're coming from a different, we're all kind, even though we're Asian Americans, we all are coming from very different like timelines. Cause if my folks are technically the first like ones of the dangs here and, you know, uh, from Vietnam, that means I'm like first generation versus other uh, Asian American friends that I know who their family have been here for a a little bit longer, you know? Right. And that kind of assimilation and, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. My friends in Louisiana or in Michigan or in New York are going to have a different time with being Asian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Definitely. and just to, just to add, um, what um, Amy was um, was kind of exp- um, was kind of mentioning are the multi generational Asians. I'm act- I'm one of them. Uh, I'm half Filipino, half uh, Guamanian Chamorro, and I grew up in Southern California in a Southern California agriculture town. 
And I know that historically my family in the States has interacted way, way more with Filipinos and Mexicans because we were migrant workers until very recently. And I guess I'm gonna use that as a segue into our next topic. Um, we all know um, some of these <clears throat> uh, classic Asian American pieces like Asian American literature pieces like No No Boy, Farewell to Manzanar and America's in the Heart by Carlos Balusan. Um, what are some recurring themes that you notice in that early generation of Asian American literature? Alex, do you wanna kick us off? Yeah, I mean, uh, and this is where um, my representation of Asian American literature kind of gets a little spotty because um, the, the ones that I sought out and that I read um, were never required in class. So I remember mm -hmm. Catfish and Mandala, that was something that my uh, older brother gave me, my second oldest brother, Eric gave me, he thought that I'd like reading it. And it was just about this Vietnamese American, this VQ who was uh, just trying to bike all across Vietnam, just trying to find answers. And it was this alienation, it was this search for identity that drew me the most the idea of I'm caught in two different worlds I know two different languages I want them to be the same world sometimes in my day-to-day -day, I'll switch from English to Vietnamese to Chinese all in one sentence because that's just how I speak and I wanted to I wanted to find out if that was particularly unique to me as an experience or if this is just how it is. Asela do you have anything to add as well? Yeah, I think mine is similar to Alex a little bit. I think it's mainly because the ones I introduced, like I'm, I, I'm for some people know that I'm an anime fan. <laughs> so I got used to like seeing like a very 10% of scope of my mom's representation of just like Japanese culture and just eating the food from back home. And I think even with books that were recommended in schools, there's rarely any like, Asian focus or Asian American focus stories. So it was just like, it was just weird, you know, it's just, it's very pushing of like ancient China and ancient Japan. It's just like, that's the push of that. This is what, how I interpret it, that we exist either in animation or through in, in history. In and ancient that, poetry or in very, very far distant futures when we're in Mecca. Right, right. And it was just like folklore and it was just like, this really weird kind of mismatch of like, we exist, but also we don't. And when I read Farewell to Mans, no, the first book that I actually realized that we do exist was Cynthia Kodahara's um, Kira Kira, which is kind of a similar to the story with Minari, but it's more focusing on like, like this Japanese American family who moved from a one small town, one big city to a really small town. And it just really focuses talking about like mental health and family struggles and how just like the family dynamic really changed since moving to from a big city to a small town. So, and they're an Asian American family, they're Japanese American. And that was the first time I felt very connected. I felt like my story has been represented in a way that I didn't think it would be represented. And that led me to our, my school's only <laughs> Asian American text was Farewell to Manzanar. But <laughs> after that, outside of it was just like learning on my own, of course, that I went through with manga and graphic novels, but that also led me to the works of like Franny Choi, um, 
Barbara Jane Rains. And it's just like, it's I've just got a, a Victoria Chang book on its way. I'm so excited. <laughs> Me too. I just got mine. And it's just like the variety of it. It's just as you get older, it just realized. And when I first heard, read Franny Choi's work on Bun Poetry, like, sorry, sorry, saw her work, the first time I realized I'm like, if she can make it, if she can be a writer, so can I. So it it get it didn't really get much text like until I got older. But the theme early on was just like either you only exist in animation or your history. Mm. You don't exist in the present. So it's really overwhelming to see that there's a lot more of all of us nowadays it's just sharing our stories and it's just so diverse and I felt in a way, I wish that my high school self was there to witness it all, you know? I mean, I think she still is, though, right? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> I remember my first um, exposure to Asian American literature was actually by accident. It was mm. probably in fourth or fifth grade. And there was a book called Grandfather's Journey by Alan Say. It's a picture book. And... I never really started thinking about race or even my identity as an Asian American until I read that book because there was something about the story. It's about um, the author looking at his grandfather's own journey moving back and forth from Japan to California. Oh, that's that's very good. Yeah, and the melancholy he felt and the, the melancholy and like the um, nostalgia he felt for one space when he was in another. And it was about him trying to understand why he kept on moving if he loved one place, but also loved the other. Okay, see, and this is this is something I actually kind of wanted to ask y'all about, uh, because I'm looking at Ocean's book on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, and that entire book's oh. premise is written, be, is written in English, and it's written to his mother who can't speak or read English. Right. So this idea of, I'm going to reveal to you my darkest truths, but in a language you can't read, I think is so speaking to our kind of experience of just not having the right words or the literal right language. So my kind of curiosity and question for everybody else is like, do you ever feel not Asian enough or too Asian? Like, what do you do with those feelings of quote, credibility? Yeah, um, I always feel that way. I think even nowadays, I still feel that way. Like there are just moments that it just feel like Am I speaking too much about my Asian Americanist? Because even when I do, it's just met with like kind of a blank face. Sometimes I have to learn that it's just them processing what I'm trying to say. But I think it's just there are just moments where times where like, am I taking up space because I am East Asian, even though I am mixed, I am half Korean, half Chinese. And it's just there's still this weird like, am I taking up space? Am I, is my story not as horrific as like everybody else? Or it's just like, it's just like a million things running through my head. But it's just mm -hmm. like, even then, even when I talked to my mom, it was just like, um, I have to learn how to understand, like, I have my own experiences and it's different from hers. So it's, it takes a long time. And I don't think that feeling will ever change. Even when you're like the most said, like I totally understand where I stand as an Asian American. I totally understand. It's, there's still be moments where you're like, am I not enough? Because sometimes you see like speak a language because my mom speaks Japanese, like that's her first language, but she's able to, she's very fluent in English no matter how many times she's like, 
I am I can't speak English. I'm like, mom, you can. But <laughs> even then, even then, it's just like I don't speak Japanese, or even when I used to do it, it's all gone. I can't communicate with my mom's side of the family.、Mm. Sucks because there's so much stories behind there and their words, and I, I can't communicate with you that. And even if I knew Korean, it's just or Japanese, they're just scattered words. So it's just there's this language barrier that kind of still eating inside. That's just like you know, it's not Asian enough. And even if you travel to a different country, you're still seen as like American.、Mm. You know, it's just it's so weird. It's just caught in the middle of between. Like you're not American enough. You're not Asian enough. Like there's no in between. <laughs> Amy, do you want to add anything?、Um, I, I, the way I grew up. I grew up in Irvine, California, and at the time in the '90s and the 2000s, it was a really white place. Even though, to my satisfaction, Asian Americans eventually took over that city, <laughs> and there's more Asians in Irvine than you can imagine. Like there's like a farm restaurant down the street from where I live, but back then there was a lot.、Uh, we were very rare, even though I think we were planting the seeds probably that were going to flower.、Um, And I grew up with, you know, only like、uh, three or four other Asian Americans from preschool all the way up until eighth grade, and so I probably had a very traditional,、uh, proper Asian American shaming of being very rare, of not speaking Vietnamese because my parents who were Uh, among the first Vietnamese refugees in Orange County, didn't teach me the language because they saw it as、uh, a weakness of surviving in this country. Whereas now we know, in hindsight, knowing another language is always a power. It is always a power to be able. I, I don't know if you've listened to or read Trevor Noah's、um, memoir, but he talks about how being a polyglot. How being able to speak multiple languages helped him traverse and helped him survive in South Africa to be able to speak so many languages. Because when you speak someone's language, you are absorbing and you are accepting of a tradition and culture in a way that is so powerful that you cannot. You it is very difficult to get that foothold without the language. So I don't speak Vietnamese.、Um, And so I will. I will always have that weakness within me, of not being able to connect with、um, members of my own family, and members of the Vietnamese American community. Do I think this makes me less authentic? No. And the reason why I don't think that is because I think, as a teacher, I have spent many years trying to,、um, I think, embolden and encourage my students in finding. The values within themselves of stopping, of never apologizing for how they were raised、um, and for their circumstances and their situations. I cannot believe how many of us have been forced to feel shame for things that were beyond our control. And I think that is the power of being a creative writer or being an artist in finding the value within our situations and being able to speak for ourselves. And being able to find that strength, and I'm just so excited. I think about seeing、um, the generations that are younger than me find that power, and and grab it with such joy and confidence, 
and feeling like they can be around other people and be able to write their perspectives and write their voices and not have to apologize for it, not have to feel lesser than or other than. Um, I remember like I, I was a traditional English major. And even if when you think about that word English, right, it prioritizes Brit British literature. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also became an English major pretty much as like a receipt to show like I'm smart right. enough to be and a now, writer. Look, I passed you all your to, dumb right? tests. Now it's not an English major. <laughs> now it's a literature major. Like my my favorite writers, like Hanif Abdurraqib, constantly would be like, "Yeah, I don't really have formal writing, so I kind of just figured out my like writing style on its own." And it's just like, "Yeah, that's what you should be doing," because he's interacting with the world and he's interacting with his circumstances. Right. It's not about being clever; it's about being honest and truthful. And when we're not giving examples right, of how to be honest to be this and truthful, game we you have to play. That like out if you would ourselves. go to dinner parties or you would be in academia circles, they would be like, "Have you read the latest Philip Roth novel?" No, no, I haven't. I actually haven't read any of Philip Roth because I was reading people I <laughs> yeah, wanted it's just to like, read. Well, I was reading Asian American writers. Exactly. It was just like, well, have you have you heard the new JAD record? Like, have you heard G. Yamazawa? Yeah. Like, there's all these other things that I can also purport to you and say, like, this is valuable right. in my lens. But like, what are we doing here? Are we showing yeah. off? Are we are are we competing with each other? Right. Are we actually and trying so to learned, exchange ideas you can't and feel start ashamed conversations? Of saying no, I haven't read that because I was, I was too busy reading other things that were really important to me and not feeling ashamed in that. I've had to learn to like re, to, to remake it. So like, it's, it's the after you culture, right? Because like, even if they say something offensive, I, I feel like I need to reword it. So then when I reply, they realize, oh, I said something offensive, but Alex is chill with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, coming from like an older family in America, um, what's interesting is what's interesting for me is that I'm so like removed from Tagalog because my great grandparents um, they lost all their family after World War II. So like after the Korean War, they fought another war for America. They came over, and they made this really conscious decision to not speak Tagalog around my grand my grandparents generation like my grandma and her um siblings and they also started changing the name as they had more children they started giving them more americanized names like they had one son in the philippines his name is alfredo but we call him uncle nick they changed it to nick and he named his child nick after him who and else has asian <laughs> uh middle names that's actually their it's real true. uh name yeah <laughs> I'm I'm it's Zachary Franklin Ray name. Anderson. That's my born name. <laughs> I surprise a lot of people at job interviews. Wow, that explains a lot. When my biological father's name have like an American name, that explains why. I mean, my my family, uh, you know, my mom and dad have their names, but uh, my oldest brother is Richard, and then it's Eric, and then it's John, and then it's Alexander. But like. We, all of our, our all of our middle names is our, our is our like names. It's Dung and uh Ye and Hui and uh Do. Like those are our middle names, but it's hidden between our first. It's just you don't have to write the metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like right there. Yeah. And I wanted I think, to yeah. oh, I'm sorry, Zilla. Oh, no worries. I think my my case was that like 
I always had my Asian last name, but like, but whatever it was just, but when my mom got remarried, it changed into like American name, but I kept my mom's Korean last name. So as my middle name. So it's like, I like, it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at my um, bookshelf right now. Like I have all my Asian American Pacific Island lit kind of apart, like closest to my desk. Cause that's what I'm referencing the most during this podcast. And I'm looking at like the older books like America's in the Heart, Amy Tan and Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston and also Nono Boy by John Okada. And I see a very, like a huge difference between them and like the next generation of authors such as like, I'm looking at um, Amy's book, We Should Never Meet. And I'm also looking at um, Randy Rabay's book, Patron Saints of Nothing. It's talking about, and I know with, patron saints of nothing it deals with the theme of trying to reclaim one's Asians. Mm. and does anyone else kind of see those themes in other newer books alex do you want to kick us off i'm looking at my shelf right now and you know shout outs to ocean vong shout out to hyung win shout out to chen chen shout out to franny Choi. shout out to uh you know lee young lee like there are so many once i this Bo Sia was actually probably the first literal Asian poet that I saw in slam poetry world. And I thought, oh, I can do this. He's funny. He's making fun of Asian culture. This is so good. I can do this. And then eventually I was like, I can't just make fun of the stupidity anymore. I got to figure out different ways to approach this subject of being Asian and then reading other people's interpretations of their own Asianness was just so eye opening. It was just, it helped me so much to feel comfortable about where I'm at. I'm even looking at Lang Leaves' work, like Memories was great and like all these different ways of quote, being Asian American, just to show like, again, we're not a monolith. Yeah. And I also wanted to bring up, um, you know, there's a huge difference between the the lived and written experiences of Asian Americans on the mainland and Asian Americans living in the Pacific Islands. Mm -hmm, like, we mm -hmm. haven't even touched on indigenous Pacific Island literature yet, but like one example is Lois Ann Yamanaka. Her poetry, her poetry and her novels are written in Hawaiian pidgin, which is a language created because of commerce. And somehow because of that use of that, of that dialect of English, we have a richer idea of a working class mm -hmm. Hawaii. Yeah, for sure. I definitely like I, I always whenever I'm on road trips or I visit somewhere, I'll always try to listen to musicians from that area because I just think it adds so much more of like, oh, right. This is the place that you are living in, in which you would make this music. So kind of knowing those kind of small little details, like I think adds so much into the experience of it all. And being respectful. Yeah, exactly. I also noticed that across generations of AAPI authors is this incredibly strong sense of place. Like a lot of these books and a lot of this poetry is really rooted in the regions or the spaces that their characters occupy. Like um, Julia Tsuka's book, The Buddha in the Addict, which is about Japanese picture brides. We have this really rich vision of what the California Central Valley looked like from their point of view. And uh, I wanted to ask you all, like, how important is a sense of place in your guys' writing? Amy, do you want to... Uh, start off? Sense of place. So I think um, that is something that I I love reading when I'm discovering a new author 
Um, I, I think I struggled for a long time as a writer with writing a sense of place. And it wasn't until I couldn't get my sense of place until I had to leave my place until I left Orange County in Southern California. And I started to miss it that, um, I think writers write what they are longing for or what they want to see in their, you know, what they dream about and, and what they yearn for. And often if you're there, it doesn't occur to you that it's something that's valuable. And so when I left and I missed it so much and I missed seeing other Asian Americans around me and I realized how fortunate I was and how scary the rest of America was when you were outside of your home, right? Um, it made me realize um, when you write about it, it brings you back to that place. And so that is when you could see it in your, um, you could see it in your mind, you can see it in your heart, and you can start building it um, in your scene. Like for me, I write fiction, right? I could build it into my setting, the places that felt like home to me or the places that I felt like were the first things that I could see as a child. And um, even if there were places sometimes of cruelty and ignorance and racism, that is my childhood. And that is where I was first getting a sense of right and wrong and what the world was going to be. Um, so I think inevitably, even if it's not like incredibly rich, lush description, so you could actually visualize it, you, you do get a sense of place, I think, from writers because they are writing what they are longing for and what they see in this world. Oh, gosh, I love that so much, Amy. And that I, I, oh, I 100% believe in that. And I think on the other flip side of the coin of if you are discovering things and thus you find out where you are, or on the other hand of you know where you are and you're trying to find other things. I think I was on the former where I was, I knew that I was the youngest brother. I knew that I was half Vietnamese and half Chinese. I knew all of these things about me, but I had no idea who I was. And I think, uh, to quote Eve Ewing, fantastic poet from Chicago, I wanted a map not to know where things are, but to know where I am. And I think that has been my pursuit of writing and all of this, of just trying to figure out where I am and my distance between that mountain that I call racism, that flood that I call, you know, hatred. It's building the map and trying to figure out where these landmarks are in accordance in accordance to me and even these landmarks are part of my identity how far am I to my Asian American identity how far am I to my Vietnamese identity my Chinese identity how close am I to my youngest brother identity or when I'm with my friends and I become you know the group leader all these different ways and all these different degrees and distances I'm just trying to build the map of myself Again, to quote Eve Ewing, I wanted a map not to know where things are, but to know where I am. And I'm just trying to figure that out. Yeah, no, I love hearing, Amy, like what you said is just, that's impactful. Like there was just this longing. I think when I started writing, it was, I, at first I wanted to do like fantasy, <laughs> just like write so much fantasy and just wonders of the world get my mind just like everywhere. But when I started reading more of like, Literary, literature and literary text is just feeling of sense of I'm not the only one and I feel like that's why I love just literature and I gravitated to books so much and poetry specifically is that 
there's just this connection that I'm not alone. And I'm looking at the books that I picked out in my bookshelf, like from Franny Choi's Soft Science, incredible. Um, Sally Windmouth's Oculus, which is fantastic. And that's just, there's just so much connection to it. And I can even look at even E.J. Coy's The Magical Language and other, that her memoir, it was just, there's just so much connection. I feel like the it's that kind of feeling I haven't experienced in a long time. Like I experienced it with music and like, I, I just love listening to music and whatnot and just reading up the lyrics. It's that kind of feeling, but more so much understanding maybe because I'm just older now and so different when I was like in high school, but the sense of longing, sense of being, feeling seen and through books and literature, it's just that it hits so different. It really hits different because it's just expanding on identity and culture and just have that sense of reassurance, knowing that like kind of reminding that there are so many stories similar to mine, even so vastly different, but still have this intersection that knowing that I'm not alone in this journey. And I'm still like Alex is just mapping out, finding more about myself. Like I knew I'm Asian American. I'm very proud of it. And I know where my family come, came from and how, where I grew up in, but it's just that continuously finding myself through everything and i think that's where my writing flexed that it's just learning as time goes by all right so it looks i really want to continue this conversation but we're running out of time and i want to get us out by seven so let's get into kind of the fun part of like let's share some of our favorite asian american texts who wants to go first i'm going to recommend two things that aren't traditional literature um one is if you know there is uh, the new food critic, not new, she's been there now for a few years. The food critic for the San Francisco Chronicle is Solejo. And her food reviews on restaurants are amazing pieces of Asian American literature and Asian American nonfiction in terms of contextualizing Asian food within this culture. And I think her writing is amazing. And I also watched this amazing um show on Hulu um, called Pen15. I don't know if you guys know it. Oh. <laughs> Maya Erskine, I find she's probably the bravest, most amazing Asian-American female stand-up comedian right now. She's just, mm. and I wish I had known about her, but she, if you haven't watched it, she she depicts, she, she it's, it's a show where it's too, 30-something female comedians are playing 13-year-old versions of themselves in middle school. And she perfectly captures what it means, what it feels like to be an Asian American in a, a, a mostly white suburban community, but just still being fearless and mm. unapologetic about herself. Um, and I think those two, I think, were incredible inspirations to me um, in the last year. Alex, do you have anything? Or Azella, either one. Um, I do have a couple of them. So my first one is actually I have two chapbooks. So they're actually both of them my friends. Um, one is actually only available on her Etsy store. It's called Me by Katrina M. And what's great about this chapbook is that it's a short compilation of like her poems of her experience, just like 
being existing as a queer Filipina American woman and just experiencing life and just trivial and it's just a beautiful thing just a lit so many great works in there and there's just so much that I cannot wait for y'all to read it and one that's actually physical is called No Saints by Kiana Allegra Labra she is a phenomenal writer and she's also editor-in-chief at Maria Zapatiras which I am a poetry reader for and they're both my good friends and definitely check them out and when it comes to albums I need everyone to go listen to um I know she's not Asian American, but she's British Asian. Rina Sawayama's debut album, Sawayama, is just this really nostalgic 90s to early 2000s sound, but still have this feeling of like, I am like, I want to tell my truth, but also it's just like being a rebel on my own terms. And it's so cool. So I really want y'all to check those out. <laughs> I have been re recently. I read this uh, one graphic novel by Jean Luen Yang. Uh, mm. Superman smashes the clan. Nice. Yeah, and it's really funny, and it tells a really complex story about like moving, not like really about immigration, but moving from Chinatown to like the main part of the city, mm. and like trying to, um, and the experience of growing up in like a 1940s uh, um, metropolis. And then another thing I've recently been, re I reread it was The Descendants by Kawhi Hart Hemings. And the more I read it, and it's about a white family living in Hawaii who are technically the descendants of the Hawaiian monarchy, but they have all this land that they don't know what to do with. And as I was reading it, even though it's not explicitly saying it, it just felt so wrong that they got to decide what happened to this untouched land in Hawaii. And like, I don't know if Hemings was trying to show, was trying to like um, show this sense of wrong, but I totally felt it. All right, everyone. So thank you again for coming in. And uh, this will be posted on the 14th. Uh, thank you again for coming. Uh, Amy, Alex, Azella, I hope, I think we had a really great conversation. Thanks. Thank I'm you so, so much. Thank it was lovely to chat with you guys. That's our story. I'm Zach Anderson. Our Stories is presented by Chop6 Alley. For more content like this, visit our website at chop6alley.com. You can also check out our nonprofit website at chop6alleyart.org, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at chop6alleyart and chop6alley. If you'd like to sponsor our next podcast, have a topic you'd like for us to discuss, or would like to be a part of the team, send us an email at chop6alley at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Zach Anderson. See you next week.